Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's uh, pray as we uh, come into the message this morning. Lord Jesus, it is so good to worship together, to sing praises to your name, to the name of the Father, and to remember the work of the Holy Spirit, to be united together at the table of communion, to remember that uh, we are of one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one Savior. And so I pray in this space today uh, that we would know that we have created a dwelling place for you, the Lord Most High. I pray that we would know that you seek to speak to us, to lead us, to guide us, to protect us. And I pray that you would speak to us today through your word, through the words of your people, through the words of our praise. uh, Let our hearts and minds be renewed with your truth. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. When I was in high school, I got really into World War II history. This is something that happened. And uh, I'd watch History Channel all the time and watch all this stuff about World War II. And at the beginning of World War II, there's this interesting thing that happened. So France believed that they were safe against Germany because they had this thing called the Maginot Line. And the Maginot Line was this defensive line that they had started building in the 1930s. And it stretched for over 200 miles on the northeast border of France. For the time, it was a state-of-the-art defensive Position. It was built of really thick concrete with heavy guns. They had living quarters, storehouses, underground rail lines. I found a picture, a diagram of it. So look at that. Look at how awesome that looks. You got like all these different guns everywhere. It's like if you were in France, you'd be like, there's no way that Germany is going to be able to get here. Because look how defended we are. We've got everything that you could possibly need. It was actually designed to hold off any German attack. But the Germans defeated this fortified defense by simply going around it. Imagine that. You know, they, they went through a forest that the, the French had decided was impassable for an army, the Ardennes Forest. And the French uh, thought there's no way anyone can get through this forest, but what they didn't take into account was modern weapons of warfare. They didn't take into account airplanes, and they didn't take into account big, huge tanks that can just roll through a forest. And so the Germans went around them and uh, eventually defeated France, and, and France had to surrender to the enemy. Now, France fell in defeat because they underestimated their enemy. They were relying on the wrong weapons. They weren't anticipating the attack that their enemy was going to use. They thought they were protected, but they were actually completely unprepared. So last week, if you were here in the sermon last week, and if you weren't here, you can always go back and listen to it. But last week in the sermon, we saw that the Apostle Paul tells us that we too are in a spiritual battle against the forces of evil, the spiritual forces of evil that are around us, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces that are arrayed against us. And I was thinking about that this week, that we have to be careful to not make the same mistakes as France did. To defeat the attacks of our enemy, we have to be armed with the proper, with the right weapons and armor. We can't underestimate our enemy's intelligence intelligence or our enemy's cleverness, right? We might think we've got this defensive line and then they come in through the forest around us. So we've got to stand firm. And we have to rely on the strength of who we are in Christ to defeat the attacks of the spiritual forces that are arrayed against us. So we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And Paul's telling us here that we are in a battle against the unseen forces of the spiritual world. And then we have to put on the full armor of God to hold our ground and stand firm against the attack of the enemy. And we are protected when we remember who we are in Christ. 
And that's listed here as Paul as spiritual armor that's available to us through Jesus Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the reality that we saw last week was that Satan does scheme against us. And for this reason, Paul tells us about spiritual armor. But let's just remind ourselves of the reality of our, of our world first. We're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand." So I want to jump forward a little bit. Last week we talked about those first few verses. I want to jump forward. Notice that Paul says, when the day of evil comes. Not, not if the day of evil comes, but when the day of evil comes. And you might go, okay, what is the day of evil? Some people have interpreted it to mean some future day of evil. But that probably isn't what Paul means, because everything in this text is speaking to the present, current time. Saying for this moment, for this moment in time. So what he's meaning is, this is still an evil age. Paul still says that God, that Satan is the God of this world, that he has some, some still measure of power in this world. So Paul's really saying in this moment, in this evil age, when this day of evil comes, stand firm. Because what Satan tries to do is he tries to take your eyes off of Jesus. And to do that, he will tempt us, he will condemn us, he will accuse us, he will lie to us. And so Paul's saying in this present moment, in this evil age, the attack is coming. So be ready with the armor of God. And now we come to kind of the biggest question. What exactly is the armor of God? And I, I want to be really clear that the armor of God is not magic. Right? We don't put the armor of God on by saying the armor incantation. And I've heard of people who do this, right? They, do, they say, I've had people be like, I do my pastor every day when I wake up, I pray the armor on. All right? I, I pray on the helmet, I pray on, I'm like, okay, I don't really understand what that means. Because that's not really what Paul means here. It's not a magic ritual. It's not an incantation. That's not what Paul's meaning. The armor of God is, is a metaphor for remembering who you are in Christ and what you have received from Christ. And each piece of the armor is related to something that we already have in Christ. And we already have this armor because of who we are in Christ. We simply need to be diligent in remembering who we are in Christ. And it, when we remember who we are in Christ, when we remember what we've received... That way we are putting on the armor and standing firm. So really, the armor of God is related to everything that Paul was teaching us in the first three chapters of Ephesians. You might have noticed when we started the sermon series, I spent, what, like four weeks in the first chapter of Ephesians? That's because everything you need to know about standing firm in the Lord and in his hidden mighty power is really contained in that first chapter of Ephesians. You need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know about your union with Christ. That is how you are going to stand firm. We need to know that we are accepted by Christ, that we are redeemed through him, that we are adopted into God's family, that we're called the children of God, that we're sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, and that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We need to know all those things. We need to know all that we've been given through our union with Christ. As Paul prays in Ephesians 1, that we would know the incredibly great power for those of us who believe. So today we're just going to go through those pieces of armor and what you're actually going to see is that most of those pieces of armor just relate back to things you already know to be true. It's just a, a reminder of, of standing firm in what you know to be true of who you are in Christ. So let's continue on in Ephesians chapter 6. 
He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So the first piece of armor that Paul talks about here is the belt of truth. And and the belt of truth is the most critical piece of armor. Constantine Campbell explains in his commentary that uh, Roman soldiers would wear a wide belt-like leather apron. Kind of like, have you ever seen like power lifters or weightlifters? They wear this big, wide leather belt. That's to keep the core strong, right? It's to keep everything in the right place, to give you strength in the way your muscles are using. So they would actually wear that under their armor, and it was an extra piece of protection for the abdominal and, and groin area, but it was also a foundational part of, of the armor that helped them not to buckle, but to remain upright in the force of battle. So imagine the Roman shield wall, and that shield wall gets hit, and you need something to strengthen that core as you hold the enemy back. So the belt of truth is one of the most critical pieces of armor for all the armor. And the spiritual equivalent is truth like a belt around your waist. So truth is regarded as the quality that's going to protect the most vulnerable parts of your body. That's going to keep you upright. It's only going to enable you to stand firm. Or to put it another way around, without truth, believers will be vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy. They'll be vulnerable to the devil known as the father of lies. Falsehood is the chink in the the believer's armor. And so if that's exposed, if we start to believe lies, if we start to believe falsehoods, then then our belt of truth is compromised and, and we're unable to stand as firm as we would like to be. So one of the things we know is that deception and lies is how Satan operates. He takes truth and he twists it. He, he makes sin look appealing. He lies to us about happiness, telling us we'll be happier if we just do this or acquire that. And we can be deceived. Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit, by the time they were eating that fruit, they didn't think it was a bad thing. They, they were deceived. They, they did this thing believing it was good, like this is going to give us insight and knowledge and wisdom. They were deceived through lies and deception. And Satan still seeks to deceive us today. I was reading a story Chip Ingram tells about a man who had lost everything in his life due to really a series of, it started out as small compromises, believing small lies. The man told his life story saying he was raised in a godly family and he had raised his family in a godly home. He had been a Sunday school teacher. He was on multiple boards of the church many times. He was a pillar in his church community. But he was meeting with Chip at this point because everything in his life had fallen apart. His marriage had ended. Uh, He was involved in an adulterous relationship. His children had rejected him, causing him to be desperately depressed. And we wonder, well, how did that happen? How did you lose everything? How did you get to this point in your life after having it all, so to speak, to having nothing? In his own words, the man said, I did really have it all. I had a beautiful wife, I had wonderful children, I had stature in my community, a significant role in my church, and a thriving business that just kept succeeding. I had a home here, I had a great vacation home somewhere else. And he said, I thought God's hand was on me forever, because everything I touched seemed to turn to gold. But I was wrong. And the man began to recount the tale of compromises and small issues, not resolving an argument with his wife, and letting those little arguments build into bitterness against his wife, that he then used to justify flirting with other women in the workplace that led to affairs, telling small lies that started to lead to bigger ones. He said, everything seemed so inconsequential at the time, but in a few years there was new patterns developing into his life. 
right? Adultery became a part of his life. Little lies became lapses of integrity that his business partners started to notice. You're not telling the truth in your business dealings. And business uh, relationships dissolved and his business started to go downhill. He said, in a few years, I was living completely the opposite life that I once lived. And the man said, really, what happened is I was deceived. But no matter how many times people warned me, I couldn't see it. I was deceived into believing that money and pleasure and ego gratification was actually what I deserved. And I actually started to believe, he said, this is how deceived I was. I started to believe that all the things I was engaging in were things God wanted for me. He said, I read my Bible and I went to church, but I still couldn't see it. And behind this man's pursuit of of pleasure was lies. Lies about how to be happy. Lies about how to be fulfilled. Lies about what he deserved. And it was all deception. Lies of the enemy that happiness and fulfillment was found elsewhere than what God had already given him. And Satan also lies to us about Jesus and our identity in him. He'll convince us that we won't find victory over sin. He'll convince us that we're second-class Christians. He'll convince us that we're not really children of God or that we don't really deserve to be. And this, is, this one hits home. I was meeting with a guy one time um, who was absolutely convinced that, he was, that everyone else was experiencing God in a more significant way than he was. And he had bought into this lie that he was on the outside of the family of God looking in. He believed the lie that he wasn't worthy to receive from God and he wasn't worthy to meet with God. So he believed the lie that he was in some way defective. He believed that he was saved, but kind of like this idea that he's going to sneak in the back door of the kingdom of God. That God didn't really like him, that God didn't really approve of him, but that because he kind of did the right things he, and, and believed in God, that he would get into the back door of heaven. And you know, he was a believer. He believed all the confessions of faith. But there was a lie he believed that he was defective, that he was second class, that, that God wouldn't like him. And so he had to renew his mind with truth. We had to affirm to him that he was an adopted child of God, a co-heir with Christ, united with Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, making him a spiritual dwelling place of the Lord that made him cry out, Abba, Father. We had to combat the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. But that was a process. His foundation was built on lies and we had to shift uh, you know, his faith foundation from, from the, all these lies he believed about God. That God really hates me. That, that God wouldn't really like me that God isn't really my father. He's everyone else's father, but he couldn't be mine. We had to shift the foundation to the truth of what God's word says about him. That in Christ, you're a child of God. That in Christ, you are loved, a beloved child of God. So applying the belt of truth means applying the word of God, which is the word of truth, and asking the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, to guide you into God's truth. We have to accept scripture as authoritative and truthful for every area of life, and that's the first place to start. If you feel the the lies of the enemy or even recognize your own deceitful heart manufacturing lies, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you to the truth in the word of God that counteracts those lies. That's a lot of times what I do if I give spiritual direction to people, is I'm just telling them, I say, tell me what you're thinking, tell me what you're, you're believing. And so often there's lies that they're believing. And then all I have to do is find the truth of God's word and say, hey, when those lies come in, when those thoughts come in, I want you to to stop that and say, but that's not true. This is what's true. And use the word of God as truth to combat the lie. So to put on the belt of truth, we need the truth of God's word. We need a dependence on the Holy Spirit, who's the spirit of truth. And then we have to speak truth to those lies. So it's not just about praying in the morning, Lord, give me the belt of truth today. It's actually knowing the truth. 
to withstand the lies of the enemy. And when the lies come, applying the truth that you know. That's why it's important to be together learning the truth of God's word so that we know the truth to apply it to the lies of the enemy. So that's one way that Satan attacks is through lies and deception. We need the belt of truth. We need to stand firm on truth. But another way Satan attacks is through accusation and condemnation. He attacks our hearts. Mark Bubeck writes that Satan will say to us, how can you expect God to help you? Look at how you fail all the time. Look at how you do not do what you know you should be doing. Look at the sins that you have committed. And on and on, Satan will go with the accusation. He wants to destroy your heart. He wants to convince you that you're such a failure that it's no use continuing to go on. He'll say to us, how can God use such a weak Christian as you? And Christians can be so quickly defeated through these accusations if the breastplate of righteousness is not put on. The breastplate protects our hearts. So before we move on, let's just make sure we understand what righteousness is. It's the breastplate of righteousness. Well, righteousness means, you know, if I was to simplify it, it means right living, doing what is right or doing what is just. Now, God's righteousness, God's justice is perfect. God only does what is right and God never does what is wrong or evil. And we want to live righteously so that we are in right relationship with God. But as we know from scripture, we can't rely on our own righteousness, because we're not perfect. And in this life, we never will be perfect. So we can't rely on our righteousness. So then what is the breastplate of righteousness? Well, it's actually the Lord's righteousness given to us that protects us from Satan's accusations. This is called imputed righteousness. That means we stand not on our own righteousness, not on our good deeds and and good actions, but on the righteousness that Christ gives us. So here's how this works. As soon as we repent of our sin, put our faith in Jesus, we are justified with God. That means God the Father covers us with the righteousness of Jesus. And God now looks at me as clothed in his own righteousness. Something really marvelous and and mysterious happens at the moment of salvation where our sin is transferred to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is given to us. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians like this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's incredible, that truth. It's not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness in me. And there's no stronger protection against the accusation of Satan than the truth of this imputed righteousness. Romans 8.1 has to become a daily certainty for us. You can say it to yourself if you feel the accusation and the condemnation. Again, most of our things go back to truth. Right? That's why the belt of truth is so important. So here's the truth, Romans 8.1. So now... There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So anytime the enemy sends an accusation, remember when? How could you? Don't you know that you're this bad and you've done this? And don't you remember these old sins that used to hold you down? You say this truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I also added uh, a little bit more from Romans. You know, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So who then can condemn you? No one. That is the truth of the breastplate of righteousness. And when we understand the breastplate of righteousness, that protects us from the accusations of Satan. So acknowledge that we stand firm in the righteousness that Christ has given to us through faith. But let me make this clear. It doesn't mean we don't pursue righteousness. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So now because we are in Christ, we can live righteous lives because Jesus has given us of his Holy Spirit. So here's another attack of the enemy. Satan might tell you that you cannot have victory over a certain sin pattern in your life, but the breastplate of righteousness helps us overcome that lie of the enemy because the truth of the breastplate of righteousness is that we just can't lose. When Satan accuses, we stand on the righteousness given to us by Christ. And because we have the Holy Spirit renewing our mind and our attitude and our thoughts and our actions, we pursue righteousness and then there's fewer areas for Satan to accuse. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And we re- when we resist the devil, he flees from us. That's the breastplate of righteousness. Next, we are told we have to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Sometimes called the shoes of peace. So what's Paul talking about when he says feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel? Once again, Paul's drawing his audience's attention to their understanding of of the Roman armor. And I think the reason Paul uses Roman armor is think about the Roman military might in those days. There was no army on earth like the Roman army. If you wanted to paint a picture of like the most um, fearsome, most uh, well-trained warrior, you'd use a a Roman soldier. So Paul's using Roman armor to say, just as these Roman armies are almost uh, invincible in the field of battle, that's, that's you in Christ. You're invincible in the field of battle, if you have this. So he's drawing us to Roman armor. So another understanding of Roman armor is, okay, what, are, what were Romans wearing on their feet when they went into battle? They had all sorts of different types of shoes for marching and for, for uh, leisurely things. But if a soldier was going into battle, there was a certain type of footwear that they would wear. They would have these sandals that, that they would wrap really, really tight to their feet. And then they would wrap that sandal all the way up to the knee giving more support in the leg. So not only do you have this belt that's giving your core support, now you have these sandals that are wrapped tight to the knee, giving your legs support so they don't bend or buckle. Then on the bottom of your sandals, you would have little nails or little knobs that would let you dig into the ground. So again, think about ancient warfare. When the enemy would run against that shield wall, they would dig their feet into the ground. When the enemy hit the wall, they would stand firm. They wouldn't slide backwards because their feet were dug into the ground and their legs were held firm by the wrappings. So that's why you can stand firm, right? It's all coming back to standing firm. And actually there's historians who think Alexander the Great had so many great military victories because he was the first to equip his soldiers with this type of footwear. But the point being that Paul's making is that when soldiers have a firm foundation, they will stand unmoved against opposition. So the enemy would attack, the soldiers would lock their shields together and dig in their feet, and the enemy would hit them, but the line wouldn't move because they were firm. And then what would happen? You'd be on the defense, you wouldn't move, and then what would happen is you'd start to advance. You would slowly, all together in unison, take a step forward, take another step forward, and you'd push the enemy back. And that's the picture that Paul wants us to have, holding firm against the attack and then pushing forward into enemy territory. So what's the certainty that we stand on? What's our firm foundation that our feet are wrapped in? The gospel of peace. The gospel is a message of peace. We, in our sin, we were in rebellion against God. We set ourselves up as enemies against him. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we become reconciled to God. 
The good news of Jesus is that we can have peace with God through faith. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace isn't subjective. Like, it's not telling us, oh, you feel peace with God or you don't feel peace with God. It is simply stating a fact. Through faith in Jesus, you have been justified. You are at peace with God. And that's the message that we stand firm on and that's the message that we advance into enemy territory with. Right, so not only do we stand firm in the security, the certainty of the gospel for us, but we also then advance. Using the message of the gospel, the good news of God's love, we push into the enemy territory. So we have the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We know it, we stand on it, we apply it, and we share that message with others, and we undermine the enemy because we spread the gospel. We say, God loves you. God died for you. God wants to be reconciled to you. The message of the gospel of peace allows us to move forward. That's how we undermine Satan's influence on us and the world. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so believers do need to be prepared to carry and to proclaim the message of the gospel of peace as that's our primary way of opposing these spiritual powers. And as we bring this gospel of peace to the world, there's another thing we can't forget. We can't forget our shield of faith. Paul says that this shield extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. So here's the image that Paul has in mind that his audience would also know. The Romans, Roman shields, when they were going into battle, were sometimes really, really large. About four feet wide, two and a half feet high. That's a huge shield. And they would have hooks on the side that would hook in with the other shields. And so they would actually create an impenetrable wall of shields. And when the shields were up, the soldiers could advance and even flaming arrows of the enemy couldn't stop. Because these shields had two layers of wood, usually with a layer of iron or leather in the middle. And so when those flaming arrows would come, it couldn't burn through. Sometimes they'd have people with buckets as well, dousing the shields with water so that you can take all the fiery arrows of the enemy and it's not going to do a thing. One Roman soldier was rumored to come back from a battle with 200 uh, once fiery arrows filling his shield. So while the flaming arrows are, are scary and have a devastating potential, if you have the right equipment, they're effectively stopped. And so what Paul's getting across is, believers, you've got to respect the, the destructive capacity of the attacks of the evil one, but also be rest assured that your shield of faith is able to protect you. And so faith, in this context means confidence in God, in his promises, in his power, in his presence in our lives. It's rooted in the reality of the gospel and our identity in Christ. The faith only works because it is in God. God himself is the shield. Have you ever read the scriptures, the Psalms, where God says, I am your shield? So that's what Paul's alluding to here. God himself is our shield. And the way we, we stand in this is that we have faith in God. So notice that having the shield doesn't mean that arrows won't be fired at us. But it does ensure that these arrows won't pierce us or destroy us. There is a story of a homeowner in Kansas who left their sprinkler system on uh, during a wildfire. And uh, I forgot to put the picture in the slide, but it's a crazy picture. And I actually checked Snopes to see if it was true. It's totally true. So all around them is parched black earth. And right in the center of it is this house that is perfectly untouched and the grass is green. It's because they had, they had cows on their yard for some reason and they needed to keep their grass nice and wet for the cows to eat lots of grass. And so they had left everything going. And as, as the flaming stuff would come into the yard, it was quickly extinguished by the, the sprinkler system and the wetness. And I think that's side of the picture of the believer that arrows are flying and there might be scorched earth all around us. But if we are firm in faith, it's like a shield around us. And we stand firm and, and we stay safe. 
You'll notice that the battles and the tactics that Satan are taking, they're taking place primarily in the mind, in the thought life. Francis Schaeffer said, in the spiritual battle, the loss of victory is always in the thought life. The Apostle Paul says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so the human mind, the the thought life, is the battleground of spiritual warfare. And God is concerned about what's going on in our minds. We're instructed to take every thought captive. Again, when I do spiritual direction or counseling, mostly what I'm wanting to know is what are the thoughts that go through your mind? And what, what are the dominant thoughts? And how often do they go through your mind? You'd be amazed at how many times people have thoughts going through their, their mind like you're, you're a terrible person, you're, you're no good, you don't deserve this or that. Go, is, is that true? No, it's not true, that's a lie. So, so much of this is in the mind. And we're instructed to take every thought captive. Paul says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In Romans 12, Paul says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And so we need to protect our mind. We have a helmet. The helmet we use to protect our mind is called by Paul the helmet of salvation. We protect ourselves with salvation. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says we need to put on the hope of salvation as our helmet. So God's people are to put on the hope that they have in Christ. To resist the devil, we must be assured of our salvation. And so we can say to the evil one when he lies and accuses and condemns, this is the helmet of salvation. We can say, I have been saved from sin's penalty. I am being saved from sin's power. And one day I'll be saved from sin's presence. I am alive with Christ. I am redeemed, forgiven, reconciled, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ. And that is what is true of me. That is the helmet of salvation when the lies and the accusations come. And so the best way to stand firm in the Lord and to put on all of God's armor is simply to understand and enjoy our union with Christ. We are in Christ and he is in us. I'm gonna call the worship team up just as we close here. I just wanna read through some scripture about our union with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. You may participate in the divine nature. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. So Paul begins this whole section on spiritual armor telling us a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So the best way to stand our ground against the attacks of the enemy is to walk closely with Jesus to walk in the light with God and others. And our armor comes from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and our union with Christ. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus isn't nervous. Don't be afraid. The foe is formidable, but Jesus is invincible. And that's the truth. So for any of you who've been dealing with accusations, lies, condemnation, I hope that this has been helpful for you. Renew your mind with the truth of God's word. But if you're really struggling, you can always come and and talk with me. I I don't mind talking with you to, to help replace lies with truth because that is so often how the enemy undermines us. He just speaks lies over and over and over again. And when we start to believe those lies, it weakens us. So if you've been struggling in any way, feel free to reach out to me. You can talk to me after, you can email me. Um, Let's worship together.